up, everybody? Welcome to Draft Chaff. My name is Zach. I'm one of your hosts. And joining me as per usual, Ben Fisher. How's it going, dude? Going pretty well. May the 4th be with you. We are, of course, recording on May the 4th, as you can see by our, our calendar, which I'm sure you can see. May the 4th. It's Star Wars Day today. May the 4th be with you. Yep. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually Cinco de Mayo, but, you know, uh, an equally good holiday, if not actually better. I don't I didn't do anything for Star Wars Day this year, but I think we're both probably uh, celebrating Cinco de Mayo tonight, right? Yeah, I didn't do anything yesterday. I did watch the new Obi-Wan trailer, uh, so that kind of counts, oh, yeah. but yeah, same. otherwise I didn't do anything. Thoughts on that? We'll talk about it later. <laughs> <laughs> We've got an episode to do. So this week we are talking about our first impressions with New Capenna. We've had the set now for a little over a week, I guess, if you include like pre-release time and some of the early access stuff that we were able to do. So a little bit over a week and a half, I guess. And we're going to talk about everything that we think about the format so far, what the general community seems to think about the format, and just kind of touch point with all of you on that. So before we get into all that, of course, our usual housekeeping stuff. If you're not in the Discord already, check it out. What are you waiting for? It's a great place to be. It's an awesome spot for especially the beginning of new sets where everybody's still trying to figure out what's going on and just share all the cool trophies that are popping up, the great decks people are drafting. Check it out. It's really an awesome place to be. And if you haven't seen it already, we did publish our second anniversary mailbag channel. And that's where you can drop questions for our and our second anniversary mailbag episode, which will be episode 104 coming up in just a few weeks here. So we've got about a month and a half out before that hits. Definitely drop your questions in there. It doesn't have to be magic related. In fact, we encourage it not to be magic related. It's kind of a better way for us to get to know you guys and you guys get to know us. So drop your questions in the second anniversary mailbag channel in the discord so we can get those together for episode 104. And if you'd like to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. Huge, huge, huge thanks to all of our patrons who continue to support us in our content creation each and every week. We're beyond grateful for all for all of you. And this week, we welcome a new patron to the Traficionado community in Joe. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for your support. Over there on the Patreon perks include things like our Draft Doctor series, stickers, show notes, unedited recordings of the show, and our Draft Chef Hero cards sent right to your door. We haven't officially announced it yet, but spoiler alert, it's probably inspiring Overseer this time around. <laughs> it probably is. A very, very worthy Draft Chef Hero. But I guess we'll have a whole episode about that. Indeed, indeed. So again, you can check that out at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. All right, Ben, on to our crack and draft type thing. It's not a pack one pick one this week. What do you have for us? I have a pack one pick seven. So this was a draft that started off really well. I slammed the Titan of Industry. I'll be honest. I didn't even really look at the rest of the pack. This just seems like such a busted card to play with. At just worst, probably at the very worst, you're getting, well, you cost four green, green, green for a 7-7 seven, seven elemental with reach and trample. So already just by itself, like that's a bomb in some formats. Just a huge stabilizing presence. Flyers can't attack through it and flyers are really strong in the set. When it enters the battlefield, you get to choose two of the following four options. You can put a shield counter on target creature. You can make a 4-4 Rhino. You can gain four life, or you can destroy target artifact or enchantment. This really just does everything. If there's like a problematic, I don't know, like a gilded pinions that's jumping your opponent's creatures, just destroy that, gain four life. Or uh, if the board is empty, just 
make a four for Rhino and put a shield counter on the Titan. Like this card is so much fun to play with. There's sadly not many ways to flicker it. I was secretly hoping I'd get maybe like a limousine that I could use to to crew it and then bounce it back to my hand or and then flicker it. But anyway, if you've already played the Titan, you're probably winning the game. The rest of the draft went pretty well. I'm like I said, uh, we're gonna be talking about my seventh pick, but I took a mage's attendant afterwards. That was the two and a white three two when it enters the battlefield makes a one one uh, that you can use to force spike something. Uh, I took a ballroom brawlers. That is the three white white three five when it attacks it and up to one other target creature gain first striker lifelink uh i took a rafine's informant that's kind of one of the all-star white commons we're going to talk about later one of the white for a 2-1 etb connives i picked up a civil servant the green white common like a signpost uh the cat citizen that's a 2-3 when it attacks you can tap out of the citizen and it becomes a 3-3 lifelink and i picked up a dapper shield mate that's the three and a white 2-2 etbs the shield counter when it attacks it gets plus two plus so or maybe it's when it's your turn one of those things yeah it's on it's on your turn Mm -hmm. so i've got the makings of a solid green white deck here and i'm you know pretty happy that i've got a nice solid white suite of commons and a titan of industry a huge bomb ballroom brawlers not a bad top end either so let me tell you about the pack that i saw because this is where things started to go a little wrong for me i saw worm welcome that's the tuna green you like look at the top some cards of your library, you you get a creature and you make a 1-1. One, one. This just seems awful <laughs> every time I've seen it be cast. Mayhem Patrol, that's the one in a red 1-2 with Menace. And when it attacks, a creature gets plus 1, plus 0. Oh, you can blitz it. Fake Your Own Death, that's the one in the black instant at common. Until on a turn, a creature gets plus 2, plus 0. Oh, and when it dies, return it to the battlefield tapped. You can make a treasure token. Disdainful Stroke, one of the blue counter target spell with mana value 4 or greater. Deal gone bad. Three and a black. Target creature gets minus three, minus three. Target player mills three cards. Crooked Custodian, that's the one in the black 3-2 that enters tapped. Chrome Cat, I don't even know what this thing is. It's the three mana 3-2 ETV Scry one, I think. Yeah. And <laughs> the Boulder, Mr. Orfeo. One and a Jund for a 2-4. Whenever you attack, double target creature's power until end of term. Now, noticeably, there's not a single white card in this pack. And noticeably, there's not a single mono green card in this pack besides Warm Welcome, which I don't really consider a big pull. So I felt like the rug had been pulled out from under me a little bit here. Now, there's some stuff, right? Deal Gone Bad is probably the strongest card in the pack. That or the Boulder, which the Boulder I haven't been super impressed with, but this is not a very strong pack at all. Deal Gone Bad at least is a removal spell, and it has some good uh, self-mill synergies. Later on, I have to admit, the self-mill stuff is actually kind of good. Yeah, it's interesting. So this is, given like the way the rest of this draft has gone, I doubt you're getting cut here. This is probably a pack that just didn't have many white or green cards in it to begin with. That or like somebody three seats to your left is like also in white and or green and just happens to be scooping up the first couple packs that you didn't get to see. Something to that effect. Who knows really? But I think in this at this point, I would be either looking to take just like something simple that doesn't really pull me into anything else, maybe like the cat because it's colorless and like it's not really, it's probably not going to make the deck if you are able to pick up other good playables. But I see you ended up going with the Mayhem Patrol, which I think is also fine. I mean, that kind of sets you up for like potentially, you know, it opens you up to to like a cabaretty sort of thing going on if you decide to go into the three colors. And it's a fine card. It plays kind of well with some of the other stuff you've got going on a little bit more aggressive. I don't think that one's a citizen, but you do, I don't know, it kind of fits into the curve as well. You've got a couple of two drops. I think that's a fine pickup. Nothing else here is really like jumping out at me as like a big pull. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was a rough pick. Uh, no clear pick here. I did take the Mayhem Patrol. <laughs> so here are my thoughts. 
thoughts. I'm thinking, okay, I take Mayhem Patrol. Where does that put me, right? It puts me somewhere in cab ready, but we've found that two drops are pretty strong in this format. Getting something down on turn two and being able to start attacking your opponent, start pressuring them, especially in the red decks that can close out games really effectively thanks to Blitz. The problem is red-white isn't really a deck. I don't think I've seen a red-white deck. Right. Have you? No, I haven't. I, the the closest I've seen is a cab-ready deck, and mm. they kind of play like your typical red-white decks. I had a cab-ready deck myself in the midweek Magic that was fairly consistently aggressive. I was able to put down one, like often one drop, two drop, three drop, four drop, and my yeah. opponent was like land, 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 maybe play a three <laughs> yeah. drop, maybe play a four drop, and then they just died. Like there's no, like That's, very yeah. few games were actually close. Mm-hmm. So I took the Mayhem Patrol here knowing that I'm likely not going to be playing all these things. Yeah, sure. Maybe I wind up in some sort of cabaret deck uh, and my mana is just awkward uh, and I end up maybe having to cut the, the Civil Servant. But I was also thinking, yeah, sure. Mayhem Patrol seems like the strongest card in this pack. I have a really strong white base and I hadn't seen any good green cards. And maybe, just maybe, I wind up like playing red, white, but then maybe just playing red, white. And unfortunately, maybe having to cut the Titan because Titan, it's an awesome card. It doesn't exactly line up with red and white two drop aggro <laughs> that's true yeah that's a definite like vector sort of pick you have to make there in terms of whether yeah. you play the industry because i think it's in this format even i think it's probably splashable mm. given that it's a seven drop and fixing is just so easy to come by in this format i think you could splash it i would like to test that out but it just doesn't fit the vector of the deck you're trying to build here so i probably just wouldn't bother given that it would have to be a triple pip splash <laughs> in a red white deck like yeah. you're jumping through way too many hoops to get that card to be in a deck that it doesn't belong in in the first place. Mm -hmm. So even though I took the Mayhem Patrol here and it looked like that was kind of solidifying me in Cabaretti, in the back of my head, I was thinking, okay, if this deck ends up skewing too aggressive, I might have to cut the Titan, which would be sad. It turns out the draft kind of made the decision for me. I ended up being really cut on white after these first few picks. I think maybe the person to my right did end up going into it because I didn't see any at all pack three. I ended up with a red-green treasures deck. I splashed a few white cards. I picked up two copies of the Cabaretti, I don't know, uncommon signpost, the Brazen Upstart. That's the 4-2 Vigilance that dies into a creature off the top three or five or something. And that, that, of course, costs red, white, green. But I ended up with a really sweet deck. I had a fight rigging. I picked up a stimulus package, two plasma jockeys, and just a million blitz cards. I think I got like three copies of Light em Up and two prize fights. It ended up being a, a really gross deck. Uh, just tons of card advantage. I think I f finished 6-3 or 5-3. And I did end up playing the Titan and, and slamming it a few times. Very cool. I did get to assemble a little bit of a combo in this deck. I picked up a Glittermonger to go with the Stimulus Package, which essentially turns Glittermonger into tap, make a 1-1, one, one, which is nice. Good flexibility to have. Definitely. I've noticed there are a lot of good two-card combos in this format that revolve around Stimulus Package. <laughs> Stimulus Package is a pretty fun card. It doesn't do a ton by itself without a lot of support, but if you can get some treasures going, it's pretty nuts. Curious to hear from you, the listener, though. Would you have made the same pick? Or should I have taken Deal Gone Bad and tried to go into something else? Would you have taken Mr. Orfeo and maybe cut white entirely? Or the Chrome Cat as a safe pick? Or maybe Warm Welcome is better than I think it is. I don't know. I'm just kind of stuck with the green white. Curious to hear what people think. All right. With that, on to Fairy Tibble. This is a Rosenthorn style segment where Ben and I share a high and a low from the past week. So, Ben. How's it going? What's up? Oh, it's going. So yesterday, the universe was was toying with me a little bit. Right as my lunch was about to begin, a student leaned
leaned against the emergency eye wash station and set it off, just absolutely soaking him, spraying a bunch of students at water, spraying all of my board and me, of course. So I lost my lunch period because I had to just clean it all up. And I only really get like a 25 minute lunch, which is kind of insane for teachers. But you know, other teachers out there curious to hear in, in the discord, how long do you get for lunch? I get a prep period, of course, uh, that's like an hour later in the day. But 20 minute lunch, it's like no time at all. Anyway, I basically lost my entire lunch period to like just cleaning it up, finding custodians, getting some mops, that sort of thing. And right after school, I was like about to floor at home, finally get to eat. And then I saw a text from my friend asking if I wanted to go get all you can eat sushi with some other friends. I was like, you know what? The universe, it set the scales right. Everything is is balanced now because I do tend to skip lunch before an all-you-can-eat sushi buffet. Like, that's how you do that, right? Yeah, that sounds like the right way to approach that. And then uh, I ended up going to get bubble tea afterwards, of course, knowing that I was, you know, still stuffed from sushi. So I ended up saving the bubble tea, bringing it to school today, and all my students were incredibly jealous. They were like, oh my God, I love that bubble tea place. Where's mine? Why didn't you bring me any? You know, got us talking about our favorite places for bubble tea. But anyway, um, on to a slightly different topic. My students and I were doing egg drop challenges. It's getting towards the end of the year. I'm switching gears from kind of the, the more investigative science into the more application science. So for a lot of my students, I'm having them apply Newton's laws in, in fun ways. And I'm doing egg drops where it's kind of like an engineering design process. Those that haven't done it, I give every student an egg and it's their job to be able to create like a lander to get the egg to be able to safely drop from like six feet. And then if they survive that test, we drop them out of my three-story window. So <laughs> see who survives. And the deal that I have with them is anyone whose lander survives from a three-story drop automatically gets 101. So that's a fun little incentive. I'm also doing it where, because I'm making one too, of course, if my egg breaks, every student gets extra credit. So I've kind of created this fun rivalry of, uh, of them versus me. So it's a good time. Interesting. I feel like that's got a little bit of like a double-edged sword thing to it because it's like if you over-engineer it and it works really well, all your students are like, oh, come on, you could have given us extra credit. But then if you don't uh-huh. over-engineer it and it doesn't work, then you're like a laughingstock physics teacher who can't do an egg drop. Well, I have good news. It is both over-engineered and likely won't work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I made this absurd contraption. I made these propellers and I angled them so that they spin in opposite directions. And they're like kind of stacked on top of each other. Picture like a propeller plane with, with both propellers on top of each other. And then a small lander module that's held underneath uh, with tons of like pipe cleaners and uh, uh, on the inside for spring cushions and straws, like drinking straws attached to the outside to crumple on impact. So I, I don't know. I've done these types of things before. I went for something pretty absurd. I'll post a picture in Discord later. It is a, a truly absurd looking thing. And then again, some of my students have already been testing. They just like put their egg inside a balloon. And I was like, I don't think that's going to work. Because <laughs> like, I mean, like an uninflated balloon, they just like wrapped it in an uninflated balloon and like put it in a box and then just dropped it and it worked. I was like, all right. <laughs> so huh. perhaps yeah, the under engineered is the way to go. But a downside of all this, of all the classrooms in my school, my room smells the worst. It has a terrible smell. Probably all those eggs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, you would think. But uh, we've been doing that in other places, like outside or out the window. Uh, and I've been keeping the eggs in another place too. But sometimes my room has a terrible smell. It's an old building. I think it's like the chemical trap under my sink or maybe even the eyewash station. I have no idea. Other rooms that have those kind of old pipe systems, they have something similar. But everyone has agreed that mine has it the worst. So every morning, you never know how bad it's going to be. And as it gets hotter, I'm not optimistic for, <laughs> for that. Yikes. On to our listener question of the week. This week, our question comes from Mina Kang in the Discord. And the question is, with all the fixing available, are mana bases going to be good enough to run 15 lands in aggro decks? 
Mm, great question. This ties into a few things about this format. This format supports two-color aggro decks really well. And if you happen to be in one of the, the these color pairs like that support it, one of the allied color pairs, and you can pick up the dual lands for that allied color pair or even some of this stuff, you can get really, really consistent draws to the point where you can have like, I don't know, if you're picking up, if you're in blue-white and you're picking up like Broker's Ascendant, or Broker's Hideout, is that the one? Yep. You could also pick up like an Obscura, is it Storefront? Maybe? Yep. Obscura Storefront. I'm still learning all these. The fact that they all have different names is, is rough. But then you could also pick up their dual lands. I'm not even going to pretend to know what those are, but like the blue-white dual. And you could wind up with like three or four dual lands in what is otherwise just a blue-white aggressive like tempo deck. That means that you could have like, I don't know, eight or nine sources of, of both your mana while playing fewer lands. So I don't know. I haven't seen anything go as... As low as 15. Honestly, there's some pretty solid four and five drops in the set that, and you know, these decks can splash too, but even in the aggro deck, sometimes maybe you open like a Falco Spara in pack three, you're going to splash that in your blue white deck. And that can put some constraints on exactly what kind of lands you play and what kind of lands you don't. I haven't personally had a deck aggressive enough to play 15 lands. Probably the closest I got was that trophy I posted in the Discord where uh, I had a uh, an Urbrask, and I think I had something even above that in the curve in a black-red base deck. But my mana ended up just being fine to play 17. Honestly, there's some good card draw. There's good card advantage. Blitz draws you cards uh, in the late game, which is a, a strong effect. I don't know. I think it's possible, maybe in the most dedicated aggressive deck, but... Personally, I haven't gone that low yet. How about you? So I think one of the things that we need to think about when you're talking about your mana base being good enough to run that few lands is what type of fixing is available. Sure, there's a lot of it, but what kind? And in this case, this set has done... I think the designers have done this on purpose, but nearly all the fixing in the set is like ETB tapped mana sources mm. outside of treasures, which you generally can't generate too many of prior to like turn three or four. Yeah. Like all of the lands ETB tapped, the family fixers, as we've been calling them, cost two mana in the first place in order to even use. I know like most fixing, it does have a cost associated with it. But I think when you're looking at trying to get early fixing and then also put that in an aggro deck, when that fixing is innately slowing you down, I don't think the two really go well together. So I don't know that that necessarily lends to running fewer lands because you do need to be able to play your cards on curve. The cool thing with aggro decks in this particular set is most decks are slow. Like even the quote unquote fast tricolor decks are still like not doing anything until turn three or four. And so when you get one of these two color aggro decks or two plus splash color aggro decks and you're going, like I said earlier, like one or two drop, three drop, four drop, and you're just playing a creature every turn. And some of those creatures are generating other one ones and stuff. You can chip in for a lot of damage really quick. And one of the decks that we're going to talk about shortly in blue white not only has the added benefit of playing low curves, but it also has creatures that nobody can interact with because flyers are really yeah. difficult to deal with in this format. So hitting them with like evasive damage is really easy to do in this format and also very, very good. Dude, I I've had to like put targeted removal towards a fish token. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the point at which we're at. But that kind of transitioned us well into our main topic, which is our first impressions on Nuka Pena just overall. 
So it's time to address the elephant or, or I guess rocks security in the room. People have been saying that this isn't actually a three color set. I don't know, man. It's still a three color set. <laughs> like you open a jet mirror, you're going to slam the jet mirror and you, you take the fixing to be able to cast it. And then you feel pretty confident that you could like play even double colored pip cards at reasonable points in the curve in those sets. But I, I'm definitely seeing strength in an early curve out, yeah. particularly in like the punishing these fancy try to four to five color decks. Yeah, I agree with you. I think people, frankly, we see this in the community all the time, but it's we as humans, we just love gravitating to labels and we love putting labels on things. And so when we hear a three color set, we kind of fixate in our head that like everybody's going to draft three color decks and that's just how the format is. Mm-hmm. Realistically, I think this is more of an any color deck, I guess, except mono. I haven't seen any good mono color decks yet, but mm. like I saw a bad one. If that okay, well, that's fair. But anybody <laughs> I, can build I a bad a one. mono black deck. Yeah, I wonder if it was just cut on fixing or, or like it's second color or something. It could have been. No, no, they played an awful lot of black cards and it wasn't very good. So, yeah, I don't know. I think this is a format that reasonably supports certain two color decks. Again, there isn't really a red white deck. Like those enemy color pairs really aren't supported. But we knew going into this that they were going to provide support for the ally colors because they gave us quote unquote signposts for those colors. Like we got dual colored cards for those colors. I doubt they would do that if they weren't expecting to be able to support those archetypes. And we fixated on the three color thing, but there are tons of treasures like floating around the set like they're just everywhere so naturally you should be able to get a fourth or fifth color splash in a deck that's really treasure heavy i love it i think the ability to be so flexible with the colors in your deck and kind of not worry about it too much is really refreshing and something that i think kaldheim tried to do but got wrong and this feels much more balanced in that way i was just looking through my 17 lands i think the stupidest thing that i've been able to do so far was a base Riveteers deck. I had double Courier's briefcase, Exhibition Magician, or some early control. I actually had a widespread thieving in this deck. That's the red hideaway where whenever you cast a multicolored spell, create a treasure. I think I had 10 gold cards in this deck, uh, including a bunch of the family fixers. I played Rackish Revelers, Spars Adjudicators, and Mass Bandits. I had a bunch of nonsense in this deck. There was like a jet mirror. I was essentially four color non-blue, but then I was also playing double soul of emancipation the uh the five seven that etvs to make two angels i just found that i was able to generate so many like treasures and other random tokens and just things laying around that, like courier's briefcase was was fantastic for this that by the time i wanted to cast the souls of emancipation i could usually blow up like two treasures make two angels and things like that i got punished of course the uh the blue white decks made very short work of this but um i was able to go bigger than a lot of the mid-range decks and it was a lot of fun yeah i think what we see too often right now is that the three color decks are slow like I mentioned, it's pretty common to see them not do anything until turn three. And yeah. the aggressive decks can really take advantage of that by pushing on too much pressure way too early. And so I think if you want to be able to combat the two color decks while playing three or four, you need to focus on your two drops. Those need mm-hmm. to be, they need to be there. Whether you're in an aggressive vector or not, you need to have those so that you can just support yourself early on and then make yourself survive long enough to get to be able to slam your industry of tight or Titan of industry or, or whatever you have mm-hmm. in your top end. Yeah, in a similar way, you can also prioritize low removal. Right. Stuff like strangle or um, light them up. And you have to be not afraid to use those on their two mana two two. If you're planning on like doing something, if you want to be alive on turn seven or eight to like do some weird splashy mana stuff, understand that the two drops in this set are good enough to kill you or at least good enough to get in for five damage 
to uh, whittle your life total down far enough where a bunch of fish tokens or a bunch of blitzed plasma welders or whatever that thing is called, plasma torch, whatever they are. Plasma um, jockey? Plasma jockey, yeah. Those things come down and then your, your blockers are just negated entirely. Plasma jockey plus a removal spell just can act like a wrath, a one-sided wrath on your turn and then they just smack you for 10 and your stable board is no longer stable. So I've had a lot of really interesting games in this set. Ones where, depending on what each other's decks are trying to do, games play out totally differently. Ones where both people are trying to race, ones where one is trying to race against the other, trying to curve out and do a bunch of treasure nonsense. Ones where it turns into a top deck war because there's not a ton of intrinsic card advantage. You can get to the point where you're top decking. I don't know. I, I love this set so far. Me too. I think it's been super enjoyable. One of the, my favorite cards so far has been Sizzling Soloist. That's the three and a red, mm. two, three, two human citizen at Uncommon that has alliance. And when it, so whenever a creature ETBs, you tap down a creature they don't control. And then if it's a second of time, the ability is resolved, that creature has to attack. So you can kind of, you basically just need to play a creature with this already on the battlefield. Then that gets rid of one of their blockers. You can swing in, give yourself good attacks. And then you can leave up something that could eat that creature, play another creature, and then suddenly they have to run it into whatever you... Or just play another creature that, that can eat it. it there's a yeah. lot of fun little things you can do with that card, and I found it very cool from a tempo perspective. That's something I've noticed too, like these uh, red, white, green, like cabaret sort of-esque decks, or even really white-green. There's a lot of tempo to be had in these decks. If you really like, like look into the way the cards interact with each other, you can do some really crazy stuff with tempo in this set, and I love that. I mean, the blue-white decks obviously very tempo heavy, which mm -hmm. I love. It's bringing me back to uh, my spirits from modern. But so far, I've been really loving what has gone on with this format. We should probably talk about tempo in like a, a whole episode sometime. But yeah. um, that, that'd be a good topic. A few more like, general format notes. We'll get into some specific cards and things later uh, after decks. But we got to kind of eat my hat <laughs> on, on this one. The self mill stuff, the snooping newsy, all that, it's doable. Like it's actually pretty solid. It doesn't take eight turns. I think I underestimated the self mill and connive aspects where you have a bit more control over what goes into your graveyard. You know, if we're admitting that we got stuff wrong, we should also admit that we got stuff right. We did nail a lot of the stuff. You know, three-color decks would be plenty playable because of all the fixing. We nailed several of the top commons. I don't think... Then again, not that anyone was arguing over Inspiring Overseer. Yeah, that one kind of wrote itself. I think it's good to uh, to reflect on both. But yeah, we definitely got Snoopy Newsy wrong. Yeah, I think we both overlooked the fact that there are too many ways in this format to select, as you mentioned, mentioned to pick what is going into your graveyard. What we were thinking of when we saw Snooping Newsy at first was, well, yeah, sure, if you're milling yourself off the top, like how often are you actually going to be able to mill yourself into all of these different mana values? Mm. But when you have cards that are just innately letting you select cards from your hand to put in your graveyard, it's pretty easy to piece together five different mana value cards. Yeah. Uh, I think we, you know, their mind jumps to like, well, I need to play this and then it needs to die. And then, you know, the, or I need to mill myself and get lucky with the mill. But when you have all this cool card selection um, and the ability to transfer cards from your hand to your graveyard kind of at will, it just works. And it's been much easier. I saw this even at pre-release. Like, it was really easy for my Maestro's opponents to just fill their fill their graveyard. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, Blitz, I think we nailed Blitz. Blitz is really fun. If we use some extreme case analysis, which, which I also used in my physics class today, at what point is a Blitz creature best when your opponent has to trade a card for it, right? I mean, if you have your opponent Blitz a creature on turn three, and it's like the the three one that dies into a treasure, you're like, all right. <laughs> Sometimes you wouldn't even block it with a one for it because they might have a trick, right? You probably just take the damage and say, okay, and they draw their card, but they lost some board presence. 
weapons. They kind of just got a, a little bit of damage in and life total is a resource. So uh, that doesn't always mean a lot. Now, when you're kind of in the in the early to mid game, you just play the creatures that have blitz. You just uh, like play your mayhem patrol. You, you play your plasma jockey. You just cast them. In the late game, when your opponent is at like 10 or less life, that's when blitz kind of turns on. It's almost like, a, I don't know, was there a keyword ability where like if your opponent has 10 or less life? I don't know if that's a thing. I know this fateful hour if you have five or less. It's almost like when your opponent's life total gets low, then blitz becomes good because then, well, now they kind of have to block your plasma jockey. They might have to trade for your uh, strong arm or your uh, girder goons, uh, <laughs> which I, I love that card. So really fun. At that point, it's acting like a real card and it has haste. And when they have to trade with it, you draw a card. That's like what an aggro deck kills for because sometimes aggro decks, one of their biggest weaknesses is they lose cards in the late game. They don't have a way for late game card advantage. Blitz perfectly negates that. It's giving all your creatures haste, the ones that matter at least, and they die into a card when your opponent has to trade off or, or block or kill them anyway. I've loved the experience of Blitz. Yeah, it's a fun little mechanic. I think uh, figuring out that, as you said, the extreme case analysis there and like, okay, when do I want to blitz this card in my hand versus should I just cast it is an interesting sort of puzzle to solve in the middle of any given game. I think that changes when it's best to use those cards depending on what you're playing against. Now, one thing that I think we underplayed, I won't say we necessarily got it wrong. I kind of got it wrong, but <laughs> we underplayed it a bit was shield tokens. At first, I thought, yeah. well, there's so many 1-1s running around. It's going to be pretty easy to knock these off. Turns out it's kind of not. And they just swing the combat math so crazily. It's like, you know, you're going to throw creatures in the red zone. They're going to block with their shield creature. If I want to get rid of the shield token and keep my creature, I've got a point removal at it, but that's really just like wasting a bunch of mana and a card. It's not that easy. And then when you can put shield counters, yeah, shield counters on things that already are pretty difficult to deal with, it just gets that much better. Something with, uh, you know, first or double strike and a shield counter, ridiculous. Yeah. It's like, how are you expected to beat something like that? It's just almost impossible. So they're really good. These one ones are not enough to make shield not good. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think it's the, it's not the broker's veteran. It's the, the tricolor Discipline Duelist is a perfect example of this. The first time I got into a combat with this card, I don't think I've had the privilege of playing it, but one of my opponents did. And I was like, okay, it's just a, you know, it's just a two one. Like I've just got to get the shield counter off of this thing that I can just you know, have it trade for something. And then I realized, wait a minute, I have to deal this thing damage. To deal this thing damage, you need something with three toughness. If you put something with three toughness in front of this, your three toughness thing dies and this doesn't. Yeah. If you put something with four toughness in front of this, your four toughness thing dies and this thing doesn't. <laughs> like I really misunderstood understood just how strong these shield counters would be. I haven't had a lot of experience playing, I think it's like Boon of Safety or the one white that puts a shield counter on something at instant speed and you scry one. I'd like to try it out just to like kind of see how it works. I, I don't know if the listener could comment in, in the Discord and mention if they've had an experience with it. I haven't cast the card myself yet, but you know, shield counters just have been overperforming. I wouldn't be surprised if we see this as like a, you know, one mana combat tricks have gone up a lot recently. It, this wouldn't surprise me if this one ends up being solid. Yeah. And that also wants me, like, leads me to want to mention the card. It's an uncommon, it's a three mana card called Call in a Professional. Yeah. It is a removal spell that does not care about shield counters. So if you're playing red decks, take these. Take them highly because <laughs> yeah. it's just a three mana bolt. Basically, it does hit. P it does hit players. It makes players unable to prevent damage. It un makes them unable to gain life that turn. But then it deals three damage to any target, and it 
specifically states that shield counters don't prevent this damage. So I have used it to go up like three or four mana by killing one of their like, you know, rock security or whatever the, the six, yeah. three that has trampled oh, that's or a great trade. Yeah. Or a few other like higher powered cards or higher cost cards because it kills a Falco, right? It kills uh Falco's got four toughness now. Oh, does it? Jeez. That thing's a three, four flyer. Yeah. Oh, it's uh, a no, it is a three, three. Oh. It is a three, three. Yeah. Okay. So, so it kills the Falco. It does kill Falco. It, it kills a lot of stuff in this format, frankly. And I would take those really, really highly. They're, they have done really good work for me so far. But let's move into a couple of specific decks that we wanted to kind of highlight. Obviously, the three color decks are front and center. People understand, I think, understand those a bit and what they're trying to do. But we wanted to discuss three different deck vectors that are kind of a bit more surprising. Well, some of them are. This first one, mm-hmm. blue-white, I was not surprised to see. I think I mentioned this in our format breakdown Blue white fly blue white skies seemed to be a deck that was going to be really, really good. And in this case, it's not quite skies, it's more like sea and sky. But yeah. what's so going on with blue white? Ooh, wait. well, not quite. <laughs> <laughs> so blue white has some of the best commons in the set at its disposal. We've kind of seen a, a handful of them already. Inspiring Overseer is just, well, <laughs> we all knew this one from the start, right? Yeah, as soon as, I mean, I didn't need to see it, but as soon as I saw in pre-release when I went turn three Overseer, turn four Overseer, turn five Overseer, I just <laughs> I just so knew stupid. how amazing this was. Yeah, I didn't even have to cast three in a row to know how amazing this was. For those that are curious, on 17 lands, Inspiring Overseer currently ranks as the seventh top card in game and hand win rate with a win rate of 63.4%. That is above Broker's Ascendancy. That is above Avnixilis. That is above Zeatora, above Workshop Warchief, the better Thrag Tusk, above Rabble Rousing, which is on my shortlist for, for some one of the best cards in the set. Just, geez, like, what a card. Yeah, and this is uh, a common we're talking about. So a few of the other ones in white that we wanted to mention that are really just strong are the two drops. Rafine's Informant, that's the one in the white two one that ETB connives. And Backup Age, that's the one in the white one one ETB put a counter on target creature. Both of these come down on turn two, grow either themselves or something else, uh, depending. I've actually had the curve of turn one expendable lackey, turn two backup agent put a counter on the lackey, swing in for two, and then what are they going to do? Trade and then give you a fish later? I, I like the lackey a lot in, in this deck. I've actually rammed this into my opponent's stuff just to get the unblockable fish. Right? I mean, they can't. They cannot take one from this every turn, or force me to pay two mana and upgrade it into into a fish. It's also going to keep swinging in. Yeah, it's great used with the blue tap effect that has casualty as well. You know, you can sack your your lackey, get your fish, build tempo. Nuisance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, of course, the signposts in this vector are nuts. Celestial Regulator, it's super easy to have a creature with a counter to make sure Celestial Regulator acts like an actual Frost Links and not just the Network Disruptor doesn't just tap it down. But of course, Network Disruptor is also really good. When you Celestial Regulator just tap down their thing, you still have a three mana, two, three flyer. And uh, of course, Metropolis Angel at Uncommon is nuts. When you attack and start drawing these cards, it is also a four mana, three power flyer. Sure, it has one toughness. This doesn't end up mattering too much. There's more things that kill it, but there's not a ton of like opposing flyers. And, you know, if they do have opposing flyers and that's how they're planning on like dealing with the angel, just tap their thing down, right? Like we just mentioned Rooftop Nuisance, Celestial Regulator, or even some of the cheap removal spells like uh, Hold for Ransom. Yeah, definitely a very tempo heavy deck. You're looking to maximize the amount of value these cards provide you and still be able to get in the red zone and deal damage to your opponent. Even if it's like one or two points of damage, your goal is to disrupt your opponent by enabling yourself and 
yeah, tap down their creatures, get your small but sharp, I guess, flyers out there, and then kind yeah. of otherwise ignore what your opponent's doing. Like these decks don't tend to run too much removal. Your removal is really just like tap their stuff down, bounce their stuff, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And they're low curve decks. So the aggression is there. The, you know, lack of mana fixing needs is there. So yeah, it's a great deck. I've really enjoyed it. Now, that said, our second deck here is Black Red Sack. And I have loved this deck. I watched somebody play more of a a Jund version of this in pre-release. But let me just say, Body Dropper plus Stimulus Package is Chef's Kiss. I love that combo. It's so good. Yeah, big fan of Body Dropper. So this is the Black Red 2-2 at Commons, Devil Warrior. Whenever you sacrifice another creature, put a 1-1 counter on Body Dropper, and you can pay Black Red, sacrifice another creature to give it menace until end of term. I mean, we're familiar with Black Red Sacrifice, right? Like, And this is funny because this is kind of the exact opposite. We're saying white is probably the, I don't know, early call might be the best color, and blue looks like it pairs really well with it. Black Red is on the whole other end of the spectrum, but this vector in particular is just strong when it comes together well. So Body Dropper is kind of that key repeatable cheap sacrifice outlet that the Black Red decks tend to need. Now, there's no turn against effect. Usually there's like a three mana gain control for your opponent's stuff. In this set, it's four mana and it's uncommon because it might have just been too gross if it had been printed at common. And uh, there's honestly a lot of cheap stuff in here. Funny enough, Body Dropper almost isn't necessary for this deck. It is one of the best cards in the deck, and you really want to have it on turn two if you're playing Black Red. But there's other things that pair well with Sacrifice. Blitz, in particular, because it says Sacrifice at the end of turn, just that text matters. And it pairs actually pretty well with Body Dropper because Body Dropper gets the counters when you sack the stuff to Blitz. But, you know, when your card is getting sacrificed anyway and you're getting the card back, that opens it up for you to use other sacrifice effects with that already doomed-to-die Blitz creature, like Fatal Grudge, for example, where you could sacrifice your creature to Fatal Grudge that you've already Blitzed. It's already dying at the end of the turn anyway. You know, you may as well just cash it in and make it trade for another one of your opponent's creatures and then draw a card off Fatal Grudge too. So really strong card advantage in here. Just some cards to shout out. I'm just so impressed with Plasma Jockey. Really enjoying that one. And Exhibition Magician goes pretty well in this deck too. It makes two bodies or fixes your mana. Mayhem Patrol, just all-star. Something really cool with this is the way it enables casualty. So Mayhem Patrol doesn't have to target itself. You could set up a good attack where you can swing in with the Mayhem Patrol and give plus one, plus oh to say like a 1-1 token that you have laying around, maybe one that you got off of your Magician. Then post-combat, you could use uh, Light em Up uh, now with Casualty 2 because you, you could sack your 1-1 token. That's now a 2-1 thanks to the uh, to the Mayhem Patrol. So Light em Up is also kind of the perfect removal spell for this deck. Look for ways, kind of clever ways like that to enable Casualty 2. Yeah, and one other thing I wanted to mention about this deck in particular is, again, talking about cool combos with Body Dropper, the Maestro's Diabolist or Diabolist, however that word is pronounced. I don't think yeah. we'll ever get that right. But that's the 1-4 with Death Touch and Haste. And when it attacks, you make a 1-1 Devil that when it dies, can ping things. And then you only make one if you don't already have one. But that's another great way to repeatedly generate creatures that your body dropper can eat 
and grow and do the thing. Mm-hmm. And nobody really wants to block a 1-4 with Death Touch because reasons. Mm-hmm. The Pugnacious Pugilist Uncommon has a pretty similar effect where it, when it attacks, you make a 1-1 Pinger Devil. Now, one more deck we wanted to mention, the kind of multicolor, five-color piles. These are out there, and I don't know if we have a super good read on them yet. It's pretty early in the format still. I've noticed they do tend to be green and red-based because green and red does have the most treasure production. But, you know, sometimes you just wind up in like a, a broker's deck where you open some busted card that's just a little bit further off and you're like, sure, I'll just, uh, I'll pick up like a Maestro's Ascendancy and then like putting that in the deck too. And maybe that'll that'll add in my, my extra few colors that I need or you just pick up a few dual lands. A good reason to even take dual lands above uh, maybe kind of bad commons that might not end up making the cut. Just like pick the dual lands, keep them in your sideboard. Pack three, maybe you open a bomb that's you know, like a Zeatora or something. And you're like, oh, well, maybe I could jam this into a deck. It's like a massive flyer or something like that. Sometimes these require a little bit of finesse with the treasures. They're definitely slow. I would say one word of advice is I continue to kind of figure out how to navigate these five-color piles too. We mentioned early interaction and early creatures that are ready to trade off or, or ways to keep yourself from dying to the aggro decks. Make sure it's worth it. <laughs> like, don't just play five-color piles because they're fun. Yeah, they're fun. If you want to play them because you're fun, yeah, sure, just do that. But don't be surprised when blue-white just... You're going to wind up sleeping with the fish. We'll say that. All right. So a few other like miscellaneous notes uh, that we wanted to make sure we got in here before we sign off. The family fixers, which is what we are calling the cards in each of the families that are some amount of, man, I think almost all of them around six mana or so. Yeah, five or six, seven. But they're the ones that have the ability that you can pay two colorless and attach them to or exile them essentially and give a land the ability to tap for any of the family colors. And then later you can cast them from exile. Those are extremely castable cards because they fix themselves. So if you're playing any of the two colors on their mana value, they will pay for the third color. So you can play them in in a wide variety of decks. I didn't do the math on the permutations there of which colors work and which don't. Yeah. That exercise exercise is best left to the reader. Yeah. Yeah, Go have fun with that. But they're really, really good. They're very fixable, very splashable. So take them, play them, and enjoy them. Mm Mm-hmm. Shout out to Andy for posting some good information about that in the Discord, along with some you know, like good details about what exactly can tap for what. Another note with the family fixers, be careful which land you choose to select with the family fixers. I actually found it myself in a scenario, actually with, with um, the very deck that we had in my crack draft type thing today, where I chose a forest with, I think it was like the Cabaretti one, or maybe it was the, might have been, been the Riveteers one. I had one of the fixers that included green in it, and I put it on a forest. Just not even thinking. And I was like, wait a minute. Titan of Industry is a triple pip green card. Like I probably should have put this on a mountain so that I could use that mountain as a green source if I need to in the future. But I was like, what are the odds of that? Like I'm probably not going to top deck the Titan. I'm probably going to top deck more forests in between. I ended up getting screwed exactly because of that. I, I had seven mana, but I only had two green mana. And had I used the family fixer to properly fix my mana to make sure I put that on the red source instead of a, the forest, which you know didn't really do me too much. It, sure, it got me fixing. I would have been able to cast the Titan on curve, but instead it came like two turns late. So just think about the mana values in your deck. If you don't have a deck tracker, like at this point, probably get one. They're very useful. And use that to be able to be a little more sure about how exactly you want to fix your mana. Now, this set also has more board wipes than we're used to seeing. We have cards like Hostile Takeover, Incandescent Aria, Depopulate, Structural Assault, Corpse Explosion, Night Clover. Like there are effects that will wipe out your board 
all over the place in this format. And we're kind of not used to that. The last handful of sets have not had very many of them. And this is a set that can make a lot of creatures. So keep an eye on those. Don't overplay your hands. Try not to play into them. If your opponent isn't playing creatures, probably pay attention to that. They likely have mm -hmm. one of these cards in hand and recognize what mana values they all have and when they can be played and things like that, just like you would with any other instance or combat tricks. Yeah, I did include Night Clubber on this list because against certain decks, it is functionally a board wipe when it wipes out every single one of your X1s and you realize, well, that was like five, six of my board. <laughs> it, it, it kind of feels like you got hit by a Plague Wind. There also um, are a lot of X1s in this format that aren't tokens. Yeah, yeah, there are. So the throng is worth gathering. Gathering throng has been really strong for me. Even just two of them is actually worth it. Yeah, every once in a while, you're going to draw two of them. I actually had a game where I kept a hand with one and top decked two in a row. That was awesome. Really enjoyed that. Lost that game. But besides the occasional corner case like that, when you gather like two or three throngs, that's just so bad for your opponent. They are real cards. They will always trade for a card of your opponent's. Maybe they have like a token, but you can usually maneuver around that or find a way to buff them or find another way to cash them in, like sack them the casualty or something. Uh, I've just found that having three plus throngs in my deck feels really strong. Now the three drops slot can get a little heavy. You got to be a little careful with your curve and prioritize two drops, especially if you're already trying to do the throng thing. All right, next up here, Inspiring Overseer Super Pushed. I don't think we need to really explain that any further. It makes white really good. White's also just kind of good on its own at this point in this format. Like, it's got a lot going for it. Now, one other common that we had talked about when things are getting spoiled is Jewel Thief being probably the second best common. Also pushed, but not quite as much. I think the the extra card and, and the life is a little bit better from the Overseer than, than getting like an extra treasure or whatever from the Jewel Thief. But... It's still a really solid card. Put them in your green decks. Mm -hmm. I have a, a bit of a theory about this. I think Inspiring Overseer was like part of the set. And Wizards is like, yep, this is, this is, we're doing this. We're making the busted common. Like, let's do it. And then I think green needed the help to catch up. And I think that's where Jewel Thief came from. I feel like Inspiring Overseer is pushed because they wanted it to be pushed. I think Jewel Thief is pushed to try to catch green up to everything else because I'm not seeing, it's kind of sad. I'm noticing even in a lot of my Cabaretti decks, green ends up being one of my lesser colors in it. I ended up playing like just the red and white commons are so much stronger. Maybe there is like a red, white aggro deck with just the good white two drops and the good red blitz cards. I've got to try that now, right? Like that's yeah. that's got to be good. I think Jewel Thief, they just kept stapling on extra words and extra abilities and more things because green needed the help. And I think without Jewel Thieves in your deck, green, I don't know. I don't want to call it out as worst color this early, but look, it's good. It brokers, like broker stuff is still good, obviously. I think brokers is probably going to be the strongest house, but I don't know. I have my eyes on Jewel Thief. It's not quite what I was hoping. It doesn't, I don't think it single-handedly saves green. Uh, another little note here, fish tokens, really good. <laughs> I had an opponent that had two fish tokens and they played the, the strong arm, the five drop uh, with blitz, two, three, ETV put two counters on a thing. They put two counters on a fish. And I looked at my hand and I went, oh God, I'm going to die to that. <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, you get the blue white card that makes two fish that lets you put counters of other things on them. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah, those things get beefy pretty quick. It's pretty easy in like the broker's colors to make those fish tokens pretty big. And then they're unblockable by nature. So you're kind of just screwed looking if you're on the other side of the table from them. Mm -hmm. We're not used to playing with unblockable at this kind of evergreen level. Sometimes it'll be on like one card or there'll be a card that has an effect that functionally makes it unblockable. This is probably the greatest amount of unblockability we've had in a set like 
ability density wise. I don't know. Someone could graph that in some kind of stupid 3D vector space if they wanted to. But there's a lot more unblockable in the set than, than we're used to. Combine that with stuff like Blitz, stuff like solid cheap removal and, and strangle and other things. The fish have been really good. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure exactly how much of a card a 1-1 unblockable fish token is. I mean, I think it's better than the average. It might be worth like, I think it actually is worth like a two mana card in this format in particular. Yeah, I don't know that this would fit into too many formats the way it is here. But yeah, I agree. In this format, really solid and definitely worth. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason that Expendable Lackey is so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it plays so well with so many aspects of the format that Expendable Lackey slots in quite nicely, which is one of our other tips here. Uh, it's it's pretty good glue for your deck. I mean, it, like we said, it enables the casualty cards. It generates you those fish tokens. It kind of puts your opponent in like this weird little spot where it's like, I kind of don't want to block that, but eventually I need to not take these one points of damage. And then when it dies, it's got the fish that come around and I can't block those uh -huh. anyway. So it puts them in kind of a weird spot with this little one one. I'm loath to admit it, but it puts a one mana card in your graveyard, <laughs> which is kind of kind of relevant. It's a good thing to discard to connive. It honestly just does something for every deck it's in. And it also turns into a fish, which, as we mentioned, is, is pretty strong. So speaking of things that, that go well with fish, Rabble Rousing. And this is a rare I've gotten a bit of experience with in this set. It's one of my favorites, possibly my, my favorite card to, to start with in the set. It seems like it should say for each non-token creature that attacks, it doesn't say that. When you attack with five tokens, you make five more tokens, and then next turn when you attack with, like, maybe they blocked one or two, who cares? Next turn you attack with your eight tokens, and you get eight more. And by that point, you cast your card for free and your opponent is dead. I don't think Rabble Rousing is passable, honestly. So what I'm hearing, I'm just going to clue the listener in on this. What I'm hearing is that Ben is finally realizing what Krenko does and understanding <laughs> just how good he is. Yeah, 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 yeah. I suppose so. This is like a little white Krenko. No wonder I like it so much. Uh, another comment on one of the wacky rares in the set. In this case, a mythic. I got to play with Bootlegger Stash. So I actually had it picked up, I think like fifth pick in pack one. And my first thought in my head was, okay, the four people to my right are cowards. Like, then the, <laughs> I have to take this. I've got to get like some experience with it. Maybe now that I've gotten the chance to play with it, maybe all four of them had actually cast it before and were equally unimpressed. The fact that it does nothing to turn you cast it, and the fact that unless you have an empty hand, it doesn't really do anything to turn after you cast it either. Every time I, I had this in hand, it felt like I had better things to do. Or if I did do it, I didn't have the quite as good support as I would have wanted to. I had stuff to do. I actually had it in a deck with a with a face breaker, which I never got that combo off, which would functionally turn your lands into tap, exile the top card of your library. You can play it this turn. That would obviously win you the game. But I didn't get that combo off. I was really hoping to pick up a a stimulus package for, for that deck it didn't get there. So maybe there's just a better home for bootlegger stash out there. But I can confirm when you try to just slot into a deck with just some minor treasure synergies, even I had a few like Jetmere's Fixer, even then it just was a little awkward. So the stash, it can definitely do stupid things, but your draft has to go well for it. Cool. Well, I think we're both on the same page here. Hopefully you, the listener, are is also on the same page in that this is a really fun format. It's been really enjoyable. There's a ton of stuff to do. Lots of little nuances that are fun to put together and figure out. And I'm excited to keep drafting this for quite a bit. I'm happy that we got this now and not Kamigawa now because we've got quite a few months before the next like real standard legal set. Um, that's not coming out until September. So we have quite a few months. There'll be some stuff in between with like, uh, you know, the next commander set and all those sorts of things. But this is a good set to have for a little while, I think. There's 
there's a lot of stuff to do here. Maybe in a few weeks, we'll be eating our words once the, the Bant supremacy has taken over. But you and I, like, we like Bant. I, I don't, if this is a Bant heavy format where Bant is like some combination of the Bant colors ends up being the best, I don't think either of us will have too big an issue with that. As long as the games stay fun, I think I'm good with it. Yeah, same here. All right. Well, that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. Again, check out the Discord if you haven't already. Please start to throw second anniversary mailbag questions into that channel in the Discord. We want to be collecting those as often and as quickly as possible so that we have a bunch to go through. We'll try to answer all of them on that episode. And if you want to support the show directly, you can do so on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash draft chaff pod. Again, huge thanks to everybody who's been supporting us there. We really do appreciate it. And can't thank you enough really it's still kind of awe-inspiring that you guys are even interested in doing that so thank you if you want to reach out to us outside of the discord you can find us on twitter ben is at betafish1 and the show is at draft chaff pod we'll talk to you next week so some good magic discourse to talk about this time the big trend on magic twitter this past week was talking about bearscape the new art printed for the pride across the multiverse Secret Lair. And I'll be honest, Secret Layers have, have been hit or miss for me. Some are pretty good. Some are pretty bad. This one I love. First of all, they're donating half the proceeds total to the Trevor Project, which you know helps out trans youth, makes sure people stay safe, gives people uh, resources. And that alone is just great. It's good to have people be accepted and feel comfortable in who they are. And from the research that I've done, Trevor Project has always seemed like a pretty solid resource for that. And it's good to see Wizards leaning into that. A second, this was a secret layer where all the artists were done by LGBTQ artists. And they're all redesigned arts of existing magic cards. A lot of them are fun. They're all unique. They're all funky. I recommend you go check them out. But the one that really got everyone talking was Bearscape, which features instead of grizzly bears, some a slightly different form of bears. I think this is just so funny. And the reaction that it got on Magic Twitter was just so overwhelmingly positive. And that kind of made my day to just see that while sometimes there's a stereotype of nerds or like the grinder that's offensive, I'm really, really glad to see that getting overwritten. And honestly, we've seen that in, our, in ourselves, Zach, just like going to these tournaments, people introduce themselves with pronouns just like it's nothing uh, just so casual and just a big diverse group of folks there uh, in a time when in america you know every right seems to be under attack it, this was a, a, a nice reprieve to see everyone kind of come together and say like this gay card is awesome yeah i actually hadn't seen these before so i'm just looking at them now pretty sweet the art is really good yeah uh, some nice flavor wins as well they actually released two stories this week on magic story people might not have noticed this they kind of slipped them in uh, under the radar one is actually a bit of an explanation about the new story between two characters that we're familiar with already, Sahili Rai and Huatli, who you can see there on Heartbeat of Spring. Turns out they went on a date and the story is about a date they went on and it's a really cute, fun time. I recommend it if you're interested. The second story is different and uh, I think this will be of particular interest to those that enjoy the Phyrexians. This is very unrelated to the Pride Collection. It's a story from the perspective of Elish Norn and it talks about Elish Norn being visited by Ashiok and Ashiok messing with Elishnorn and the Phyrexians a little bit, and perhaps something going wrong for Elishnorn, and maybe a hint as to what her motivations are for the coming sets. Let's just say we got some stuff spot on in our predictions we've been making for the past few weeks. 
That's pretty sweet. I also, that makes me remember, I don't know if you're listening to the show because I can't remember if we even gave you information about the show, but somebody we were talking to at pre-release, we were ran, we were talking about some of the lore stuff that we were interested in with this whole thing and where things are going. And someone was like, anybody heard from Ashiok lately? Like what's going on with that? Like, I don't mm. remember the whole conversation there, but somebody brought Ashiok up and wondered how they would have anything to do with the storyline. And I'm, they were spot on because <laughs> sounds yeah. like, it sounds like they do. Yeah, I'm curious to see where all this goes, but let's just say Elspeth has, uh, she's got trouble coming her way. Yeah.